I hope that your heart has already been touched this morning as we have opened our hearts to God, our Creator. I hope that your heart has been touched as we have approached God's holy throne of grace and mercy this morning in prayer. And as we have opened our lips and offered the fruit of our lips to our God and our Father in song this morning, and as we have gathered around the table of our Lord Jesus Christ to remember, as we have already sung about this morning, the amazing love that God has shown to each one of us at the cross and the amazing love that He continues to show to us each day as we draw breath. And I hope that we will continue in that frame of mind this morning as we open God's Word together. Thank you uh, to Brother Xavier for those songs and uh, leading them with uh, such zeal and such passion and helping us to really focus upon those words. Thank you to uh, Brother Barry and uh, Brother Skip for helping us to think about our collection together this morning and to think about the Lord's sacrifice for each one of us and to think about those two uh, acts of worship and service that we have rendered to God today and to think about them from God's perspective. Last Sunday, we started thinking about a very important biblical question. It is a very simple question on the one hand, and it is a very complex question on the other. And that is the question of what is sin? In that lesson last week, we consider what the Apostle John wrote to us in his first epistle about sin. He said to us there in 1 John chapter 3 at verse 4 that sin is lawlessness, and then over into chapter 5 that sin is unrighteousness. And we talked about those two terms for a little while and what they mean, that it is really talking about in those two verses that sin is a violation of God's law. It is transgressing God's law. It is either doing that by going beyond what God has said to us or coming short of God's law as we read it in His Word. In the second lesson this morning, we want to continue asking this very good question, what is sin? And we will think about a second answer that Scripture gives to us. And so I hope that you have brought your Bible as we will be looking once again into the Word of God and considering this uh, very crucial question for us. I would say to you, in, secondly, in, in response or in answer to the question of what is sin, that it's not only lawlessness or living outside of God's law or violating God's law, but it is an offense against the lawgiver himself. As we stated last Sunday, ever since God created the heavens and the earth and put mankind here in this world, God's law for mankind has existed. There has never been a time when we as humanity have lived outside of the boundaries of God and outside of the boundaries of God's law. We have always lived under the law of God. We have always been people who are subject to God's law. We saw that even way back at the very beginning of Scripture in Genesis chapter 1, that the first words at least we have recorded for us where God was speaking to Adam and Eve, to man and woman, was a positive command. It was a positive law that they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all of the rest of creation that God had given. But then in chapter 2, there was a negative law that God gave to Adam that he could eat of any of the fruit of the tree of the gar- uh, uh, the, any of the trees in the garden of Eden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
And we gave some more examples as history went on. And therefore, of all the lawgivers that have existed since that time, and only God perhaps knows exactly how many that is as we think about that from an earthly point of view, God is the eternal lawgiver. God is the supreme lawgiver. God is the ultimate, we might say, lawgiver. I want us to go to the book of James, first of all, this morning. If you have your Bible, your New Testament with you, to open there to the book of James. In James chapter 4, as James is talking to us in this section about uh, our need to draw near to God, our need to resist the devil and to, uh, and to draw near to God, he says this uh, to the brethren he was writing to, but even to us today at verse 11. He says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Here is James is admonishing his brethren in Christ to be doers of God's law, as he said back at the very beginning of this book, and not just to be hearers of the law. And certainly he is encouraging them to be doers of God's law at this section, rather than to be judges of God's law. James was reminding them, but he's also reminding us today, as he says very plainly there at verse 12, that there is only one lawgiver, that there is only one judge, and we are not it. We are not the one who has given the law that all humanity is amenable to. We are not the one who is going to sit in judgment of all humanity. That is reserved for God himself. As Jesus even said in the Gospels as he was talking about the fact is he was trying to encourage, I think, his disciples and his apostles to prepare themselves for persecution and suffering for following him. He says, you do not need to, want to fear the one uh, who can destroy your body, but you need to fear the one who can destroy your body and your soul in hell. He was talking about God the Father himself. And James here says to us that God is the lawgiver. God is the judge. God is the one who is able to save, but God is also the one who is able to destroy. He is the lawgiver. In fact, if that were not true, there would be no law that governs mankind. And we kind of talked about that from the perspective of our culture today in our world, that so many living around us have just kind of thrown God out of our thinking. We have thrown God out of our living. We have thrown God out of our culture. We don't want his name mentioned anymore among us. And when we throw out God, we are throwing out the fact that if there is no God, that there is no law. And if there is no law, there is no such thing as lawlessness. There is no such thing as unrighteousness. There is no such thing as sin if there is not a lawgiver. There is no such thing as us living without God's law or living outside of God's law. But James reminds these brethren here in their interactions with one another, in their dealings with one another, in the body of Christ, to not speak against each other from an evil standpoint, to not judge one another with evil motives. Why? Because there is one who is the lawgiver and judge, God himself. When we sin, I think we often don't think about this, at least I don't think about this as much as I should, but I think it's something that we really need to consider, that when we sin, we are not only breaking or violating the law of all laws, we're not only breaking or violating or transgressing God's law, 
but I believe we are committing an offense against the lawgiver himself. And why is that a big deal? Well, why is it such a big deal that we have committed an offense against our God, against the one who has given us the law, the one in whom we will stand in judgment one day? Because Scripture not only describes God as the lawgiver, as James is describing him here in James chapter 4, but Scripture also uses a lot of other terms to describe who God is, that God is also a holy God, that God is a righteous God, that God is a glorious God, that God is a majestic God. I want you to just notice just a few, just a very small sampling uh, of, of many different verses that we could cite this morning throughout Scripture. First of all, from Isaiah chapter 6, in this great scene where Isaiah is uh, looking at God as he is here at the throne room of God, and he sees all of these wonderful things taking place. And verse 2 says to us, of the seraphim, I stood above him, each having six wings. And then at verse 3, that one of them called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Here were these created beings, perhaps angels, heavenly hosts that God himself has created to serve him, to do certain works. And they are bowing down to God as they are here around his throne. And they are saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God, as if to really emphasize the fact that God is holy, the one who is the lawgiver, the one who is the judge of all, that he is holy. He is far above and beyond anything that he has created, anything that we can conceive of, anything that we can even imagine or anyone. John would say this, going back to First uh, John, as we looked at that last week in chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1 at verse 5, in talking to us about uh, our sin here in this particular chapter and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and how we can be forgiven of our sins, he makes this comment about who God is in verse 5 of 1 John 1. He says that this is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That God is the very essence of light. God is the very definition, if you will, of light, that there is no sin within God, that there is absolutely no darkness in Him. There's not even a hint or a trace of darkness within our God because God is light. And of course, he goes on to encourage the brethren in the first century and us today that we need to be like God in that regard. We need to be walking in the light as He Himself is in the light. But then I like this description of God that's found back in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 15, after God has shown his might and his power in leading his people out of Egyptian captivity and leading them through the Red Sea and then destroying the most powerful army on earth and the Israelites witnessing all of that. And so they are praising God in song, the song of Moses here in Exodus 15. It's a beautiful song to read and I encourage you to do that if you haven't. But notice what is said here about God at verse 11. The, the writer is saying, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? And throughout this song, they're just over and over praising God and drawing to their memory what God has just done, what they have just seen, the great and mighty and awesome work of this powerful God. But to just ask the question here, Who is like you? They've just come out of Egyptian 
uh, slavery. They've been living in Egypt for hundreds of years. And Egypt, the Egyptians worshipped all of these other false gods. And here is Moses and the people of God saying, Who is like you among the, the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Yes, God is the lawgiver, as James says in James chapter 4, but God is also holy, and God is awesome, and God is righteous, and God is majestic, and there is none like him. And so I would suggest to you that, yes, as we said last week, that sin certainly is a violation or translation of, or transgression rather of God's law, but when we sin, I believe we are personally offending, we are personally insulting, we are personally attacking our great God, the being that is like none other. Do we often think about that? We, we all have temptations, as uh, uh, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, that we all face temptation, and no temptation that we face is common, uh, is unique to us, but it's common to all of us. But I think if we know ourselves well, we probably know that there are maybe one or several temptations that we really struggle with, right? Things that uh, we know other people struggle with these same temptations. Maybe they have given in to those temptations and sin. But it's something that just seems to beset us. And, and we pray about those things. We turn away from those sins. We are determined to follow God and to trust Him and to be obedient to Him. But then somewhere along the way, that particular temptation creeps back into our life. And maybe in a moment of weakness, we give in to that temptation again and we sin. We all know that for ourselves. And sometimes we just think about sin from the standpoint maybe of what we talked about last week, that yes, we realize that we have transgressed God's law, that we have done something that God has told us not to do because he knows that's not for our good, or we have failed to do something that God has instructed us to do. We failed, as we talked about last week from Matthew chapter 25, to use the, the talents or the abilities that God has given us. We fail when we have the ability and opportunity to help someone with the blessings that God has given us. We fail to do that and we realize that that is sin. And sometimes we just look at it kind of almost from a legal standpoint, if you will, that we have violated God's law. But I want us to see this morning as we continue thinking about this question of what is sin... That sin is something very personal as far as God is concerned. We, we talk sometimes today, and maybe it's kind of uh, common in our vernacular, in our conversation today, that we start out a conversation with someone and we say, first of all, don't take this personally, but... <laughs> and then we say something that's very personal. Well, God, I believe, takes sin very personal. And it is a personal offense against him. It is a personal insult or attack against God, against the very nature of who God is. And I believe we need to try as best we can with our mortal minds to wrap our arms around that concept and not just say, hey, I've broken a law, but I have offended the lawgiver himself. In the passage that Brother Richard read for us, as we read in our scripture reading last week and this morning from Romans chapter 3, so many good things that the Apostle Paul has to say about, I think, this question that we are considering last week and today about what is sin. 
But here in verse 23, we all know this verse very well, even the young ones here, where Paul says, as he had already spoken, as we read last week from verse 9, that he says that we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, that yes, there are some advantages that the Jews had in being the chosen people of God, but when you come right down to it, all of us have sinned. And so he says here in verse 23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I, I don't know that I can tell you this morning all that is involved in that phrase that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, especially the last part of verse 23, that all of us fall short of the glory of God. But I can tell you this, that God made us in his image and as such he created us to be people who are reflecting his image in our life, that we are reflecting this great and awesome God that we just read about in the previous verses, that we are to be people who are reflecting the holiness of God in our life, that we are to be people who are reflecting the righteousness of God, the glory of God, the goodness of God, and all of those attributes that make God God. And we are to be reflecting that in our intentions every day, that only God can see. We are to be reflecting that in our thoughts that perhaps only God can see. We are to be reflecting that in our attitudes, in our words, in our actions as we interact with other people around us. This is why God made us to be his image bearers. But when we sin, I believe the Apostle Paul was saying it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek. That all of us have fallen under sin. We have all fallen under the condemnation of sin. And when we sin, we fall far short of His perfect and radiant and magnificent glory. Thus, we fail to reflect who God truly is to other people. And we offend Him when we sin. Yes, brothers and sisters, I believe that when we sin, God takes it personally. <laughs> because sin, as we spoke about last Sunday, is lawlessness. And God's law really is just a reflection of who He is. It is a reflection of Himself. It is a reflection of His nature and His character, of His standards and His values, what He deems to be important and who He truly is. The psalmist, I believe, maybe captures this in Psalm 19. When you think about a great psalm that talks to us about the law of the Lord, it talks to us about the word of God, you might think of Psalm 119, and that certainly does do that. But Psalm 19, as the psalmist has already spoken to us about the heavens declaring the glory of God, about his physical creation speaking and shouting how glorious and magnificent our God is, that the word of God does the same. In Psalm 19 and verse 7, listen to these words that the law of the Lord, the psalmist says, is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. As the psalmist is using all of these words to describe God's word, he says that the law of the Lord is perfect, that the testimony of the Lord is sure, that the precepts of the Lord are right, the commandment of the Lord is pure, the fear of the Lord is clean, the judgments of the Lord are true. You could use all of those descriptive words about God himself. 
That God himself is perfect, that God himself is sure, that God himself is right, that God is pure, God is clean, God is true, God is more valuable than anything that he has created for us. More valuable than gold. And so the law of the Lord, I would suggest to you, is really just a reflection of who God himself is. And if God is all of these things as he surely is, when we sin, we are sinning against a being who is holy and just and righteous and true and pure. And all of those descriptive words of who God is. To help us see sin as a personal offense against God as really an insult to him, I want us to just look at three people in scripture and their views of sin. First of all, Joseph, one of the most uh, righteous men that we know from Scripture. Back in Genesis chapter 39, I think we remember what is going on at this time in Joseph's life. He is uh, probably still a teenager, or at least in his early 20s. Uh, he has been taken from his home, uh, sold into slavery. He finds himself in Egypt, far away from home, living amongst the people who don't know Jehovah. Uh, living in a totally foreign culture uh, to what he was used to growing up in. And as he finds himself in Potiphar's house, we know how the story goes, that he proved himself to be a, a, a very trustworthy uh, steward or master of all that Potiphar had. But one day he found himself in the house alone with Potiphar's wife, and she was not of that character at all, but uh, she tries to get him to commit sin with her in verse 7 that she looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. Notice what he says in verse 8, But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? While Joseph, I think, we could probably say just given the fact that he was a man and especially a, a young man and yes he has been put into a position of authority and power and responsibility but he realizes that Potiphar is his master and then Pharaoh is even over him and so while Joseph certainly was concerned about committing sin against his master his earthly master here we find Joseph in Genesis 39 that is even more concerned than that about committing sin against his true master his master in heaven and so he responds to Mrs. Potiphar's offer to sin by saying, how could I do this great evil? He recognizes what this sin is. Yes, I'm sure he knew that it was pleasurable. Yes, I'm sure he knew it, it would bring him some joy, that there would be some kind of pleasure that would be temporary. But he says, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? That's where Joseph's mind was, not so much that he would sin against Potiphar, but his mind was first and foremost on the fact that he would sin against God. He doesn't say here, how could I do this great evil and break God's law? But he says, how could I do this great evil and sin against the lawgiver himself, against God? Now, I believe Joseph understood that, yes, sin is lawlessness and it is unrighteousness, but more than that is an offense against God himself. 
We've been talking in Cody's class on Sunday morning in the back classroom and having a, a good study about David and, and kind of looking at his life from different perspectives and how people that David interacted with saw him and learning some valuable lessons about David that we can uh, take with us and, and use in our lives today. Well, we talked this morning about King Saul and David and, of course, the uh, conflict and the tension that was there. But I want us to think about those two men for just a moment and their view of sin. I want you to compare Saul's view of sin perhaps as something that he just saw as, as being as deep as I've broken a law that God has given to David's view of sin. And David's seeing sin for what it really is, that this is a personal attack. This is a personal insult or offense that was against God himself. First of all, there from 1 Samuel chapter 15, and of course a well-known uh, account in the Bible, and I think we referenced this maybe even last week in our lesson about what is sin. But notice here again as Samuel has come to Saul and he is confronting Saul about the fact that he has sinned. Notice Saul's reaction beginning at verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And then down at verse 30, as that conversation continues on, Samuel doesn't want to go back with him to honor him before the people. But finally he does. But notice what is said there at verse 30. Once again, Saul said that I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Yes, it is said to us, as we just read here twice in just a few verses, that Saul said, I have sinned. He uttered those three words, I have sinned. But he asked Samuel, it seems to me, and not so much God to pardon his sin as if Samuel was the one that he had hurt, as if Samuel was the one that he had offended rather than God. And it seems to me, and maybe I'm reading too much into this because of what we know about Saul at this particular point and the kind of man that he had become, so filled with himself and filled with pride and arrogance and he had a big ego and life was all about himself. It seems to me that he is saying to Samuel, okay, as, as he first said to Samuel, you know, when Samuel came to him, well, I, I've obeyed the word of the Lord. I've done everything that God has asked me to do. And then Samuel says, what, what, what's the bleeding of these sheep that I hear? And so we get into that whole discussion. Maybe he's at the point now, okay, you've convinced me I've sinned. But it seems to me, especially when you come to verse 30, he says, I've sinned, but then his mind is back on himself. You come with me and honor me before the elders of the people. You make me look good even though I've sinned. And it seems to me anyway that Saul wasn't too concerned about what he had done to God, that he had personally offended God. He was just saying, yes, I've, I've transgressed the law of God, even as he said back in verse 24. But now let's get rid of this matter, and it's back to me again. His focus, his mindset seemed to be upon himself. And so I say to you again that perhaps Saul's view of sin was only as deep as I have just broken a law. And let's get on with life. Whereas David's view of sin seemed to be much deeper than that. David committed an egregious sin, didn't he as well? In 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13, as he had committed adultery with another man's wife and as he tried to get rid of her husband and was successful in murdering him, 
And as Nathan is sent to David, we remember the response of David here in 2 Samuel 12 and verse 13, that David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. He said, I have sinned just like Saul did. But at least the writer of this particular account goes on to tell us that David realized who his sin was against. Had David sinned against Bathsheba? Yes. Had David sinned against Uriah? Yes. But he saw that ultimately and first and foremost in his mind was the fact that he had sinned against his great God, against Jehovah himself. Psalm 51, we know this is a psalm that David uh, wrote on this occasion or after this occasion. And notice what he says here, how personal he makes this sin that he has committed. He says in Psalm 51 and verse 4, Against you, talking to God, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. When Nathan came to David and he confronted David with the fact that he had sinned and he brought that sin to reality that perhaps David for a number of months had, had kind of tried to dismiss that from his mind tried to act like that hadn't happened that that's been taken care of that David said I have sinned against the Lord against you and you only have I sinned we don't have time this morning it's really a, a whole nother lesson to look at the beautiful words that David pins here in Psalm 51, but because he realized that was a personal offense against God himself, I believe he goes on to say what he said here in this psalm, like at verse 10, when he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take away your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. There was a relationship there was a fellowship that existed between God and David. And David knew because of his sin that that fellowship had been tainted. That that relationship had been broken. And he is asking God, he is pleading for God to restore that relationship fully and completely to him. Because David did not just see his sin as, oh, I've broken God's law. But he realized that he had offended God himself. I think in the time in which we are living, maybe just because of a, a number of factors, maybe because we uh, kind of had the tendency to distance ourselves from uh, our situation sometimes, we, we can look at sin again as just, the, just from the standpoint of what we talked about last week, that yes, I have, I have violated, I have transgressed God's law. But maybe we look at that like we kind of do if we're driving down I-40 going 90 miles an hour and we look in our rearview mirror and the blue lights are flashing and we pull over on the side of the interstate and the policeman gets out and he comes up to our window and uh, he says, do you know what you were doing? And we said, yes, we, we know. Just go ahead and write me a ticket. How much is the fine going to be? Uh, I really don't want to appear in court. I don't have time for that. Just, just tell me what I owe so I can get out of this and, and go back to the way I want to live life. And sometimes I think we look at sin maybe from that same perspective that yes, we have sinned, we've broken the law. And yes, we realize even that there are consequences to breaking God's law. And so God, just tell me the fine. 
to tell me what I need to do to pay to get out of this because I want to get back to living like I want to live. And we fail to see that, yes, we have not only broken God's law, but we have broken God's heart. And we have committed an offense against God himself. The one who Moses says, who is like you? Holy and majestic. Awesome in power. Brothers and sisters, let us, and I'm saying us because I'm talking to myself too. But let us see sin the way that Joseph and David and so many others who were faithful among God's people saw it and not as Saul did. Let us see sin the way that God sees it, that it is an attack, that it is an offense against himself, that it is an attack on who he is, on what he does, and on what surely he has said that we have recorded for us in his word. What is sin? It's a very important question. It's one that we don't think about as much as we should. But I hope these two lessons have at least opened your mind maybe to thinking along some lines that you haven't thought of before. What is sin? It is lawlessness. It is an offense against God, the lawgiver. And so this morning, if you look at your own life and you see that you are living in sin, yes, you are breaking God's law. But you are also hurting him by your sin. Won't you do something about that this morning? Won't you come like David did when he realized that he had sinned, not trying to push that off on someone else, not trying to sweep it under the rug, but would you not humbly submit yourself wholly and completely to him? Would you not determine this very hour that you're going to live by God's law, not because you're just trying to keep a checklist, but because you know it's a reflection of who God truly is? Would you not come, as David went on to say in Psalm 51, that he's going to proclaim the name of God and the glory of God to transgressors, other sinners like himself. And he's going to devote the rest of his days to singing the praises of God. Would you not come and dedicate yourself to helping his cause? And then do what he has called you to do, why he has created all of us, to reflect his glory to a world that desperately needs it. I remember a number of years ago, and I never was one to watch Oprah and her show. But I think I remember a number of years ago, Oprah kind of making a statement to the effect that really sin is, 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 has gone out the window. Sin is just an old-fashioned notion. It, it doesn't exist anymore. And she could say that, I guess, because maybe she had gotten to the point where she thought God didn't exist anymore. But as we sing oftentimes, if there is a God and he is alive, then unfortunately sin is still a reality for us. What about you this morning? Would you come and take advantage of the solution to sin that God has given to us? Would you come confessing your faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and turn away from that sin and turn yourself to God completely and wholly? And then be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And walk out of here a new creation, clean and pure in his sight. It may be that as a child of God, you've given in to temptation and you've sinned against him. Would you not come back to him? When you really think about it, he doesn't ask a whole lot of us. Just that we come and we admit what he already knows. 
And we determine that we're not going to walk in that way anymore. But we're going to be completely dedicated to him. Whatever your need might be this morning, if we can help you in some way, I want you to respond to the invitation of Christ as we stand and sing.